this was just one of the, you know, 35,000 missions and 100,000 bombs thrown, right? So it was a case for us of remote warfare and the impact that it has on civilians. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. All rise. This episode of Asymmetrical Haircuts is supported by JusticeInfo.net. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. We're heading back to 2015 today. Two Dutch F-16 aircraft bombed a city in Iraq, which was being held by Islamic State, IS, because Hawija, that city, has an IS munitions factory. The attack was estimated to have killed 70 civilians, but after research, that number is now estimated at 85 civilians. Hundreds were injured, buildings and infrastructure were damaged, an estimated 6,000 houses and 1,200 shops were destroyed. And that strike was carried out as part of the US-led coalition war against ISIS or IS that dropped over 100,000 bombs in over 35,000 strikes. Today we have Lauren Gold and Mashiko Kanatake, both from the University of Utrecht. Hi. Hi. Lauren is Assistant Professor in Conflict Studies and the Project Leader of the Intimacies of Remote Warfare Program. And Mashiko is Associate Professor of Public International Law. And Lauren did some research on the ground in Hawija and has been talking to the Dutch military about their decision-making processes. Machiko has been considering what the information that's come out of that research now means in terms of international humanitarian law, the laws of war. And of course, we're wondering, aren't we, Steph, what actually happens now with all this information? Absolutely. So, Lauren, why don't you walk us through what we knew, like the public knew, when? So the we question is really important here, right? So we had this attack, this mission flown by two F-16s, like you just uh, eloquently explained. And of the impact was immense. So a whole neighborhood was destroyed immediately because they're in this IS bomb factory, there was 18,000 kilos of explosive weapons. Of course, the local population immediately knew what had happened in that they saw the destruction, the dead, the injured immediately afterwards. The F-16 pilots warned the Minister of Defence in the Netherlands that there was a, you know, a, a, a big impact and a large collateral damage. Two weeks after, the US CENTCOM, a military command who was leading the operation against IS, forwarded their civilian harm report to the Minister of Defence here in the Netherlands saying the allegations that at least 70 civilians had been killed were credible. But at the time, this report was classified. And interestingly enough, just two weeks after, when questioned in Parliament, the same Minister of Defence said there were no known cases of civilian casualties by Dutch uh, military operations. And she actually added, saying, you know, there's no need to kind of question the precise nature of our military operations because of the precise, the weaponry I was just telling you about is not as if we can destroy a whole neighborhood, which was, of course, in retrospect, a very painful addition to make. So it wasn't actually until 2019, through the wonderful investigative uh, journalism by the NRC and NOS, that the Dutch public found out that, in fact, the Netherlands was uh, responsible for this attack. 
But I remember from the, from the civil case that we'll get to later that there were uh, news reports, news agency reports, I think possibly even Reuters, but I might be uh, crediting my own news agency too much, that uh, this was a devastating attack and it gave that number. So in, in the media, it was known, but then was it just not known by the Dutch media that they were Dutch uh, F-16s yeah. that carried it out? Yeah, so I mean, the, the destruction was immense and was picked up um, by international media, not by the Dutch media, by Reuters, who were quoting people on the ground who were saying, look, we think that at least 70 uh, civilians perished. And then afterwards, Air Wars, a well-known monitoring organization, investigated it. The UN, the International Red Cross, all estimating between 70 and 170 civilian casualties. However, when the coalition was asked who was responsible for the attack, the coalition said it's up to individual countries to take responsibility. And individual countries said, well, we don't, you know, it's up to the coalition and we can't kind of disrespect the coalition by taking responsibility. So there was a lot of hiding behind each other. And therefore, for a long time, it was not known to the Dutch parliament and public who was responsible for this attack. Yeah. And how do you know now what you know? I, mean, I believe you were there on the ground, weren't you, Lauren, to actually investigate and the CSOs on the ground? I mean, is that how, I mean, apart from the journalists, how do you, how do you know the extent of all the stuff that, that happened there? Yeah, well, that, I mean, it started with the investigative journalists. So all respect to their work, discovering that the, the, the Netherlands was responsible. Then uh, monitoring NGOs like Airwolves were crucial in the aftermath because they helped highlight that these 70s civilian casualties had actually been part of the CENTCOM official body count since 2017. So they played a very, very crucial role. However, the Netherlands then started saying, well, well first they denied that the 70 was part, were part of the official civilian body count. Then they said, well, of those 70, we can't know how many were civilians and how many were IS fighters. In fact, we can't know now, we'll never be able to know the extent of the civilian harm that was done. So that was the moment where the Intimacies of Remote Warfare program at Utrecht University and PAX came together and said, well, actually, I think we think that this can be known and that if you do on the ground investigation, what hadn't happened until then, neither by CENTCOM or the Netherlands, we can discover a lot. So then we teamed up with one of PAX's well-known local partners, NGO Al-Khat, who had an extensive network and access to Hawija um, and built the trust with the local population. And we started to set up a qualitative research project. We drew on the investigations that had already taken place that I just mentioned, but also satellite imagery of the before and after the airstrike and in-depth interviews with uh, 119 civilian casualties, as well as 40 key respondents. So, you know, the mayor of Hawija, the NGO coordinator, so who really had an in-depth understanding of, of the city and the destruction that had taken place. And then we started to corroborate these, all this data and started to discover how many civilians had perished, but also the reverberating civilian harm effects of this one strike. And like I said, this for us at the Intimacies of Remote Warfare program was really important because, as Janet just mentioned, this was just one of the, you know, 
35,000 missions and 100,000 bombs thrown, right? So it was a case for us of remote warfare and the impact that it has on civilians. And the remote warfare aspect is that the Dutch, also the US, but the UK, France, uh, Australia, Denmark, a lot of Western advanced militaries engaged in this war against IS, but without sending their own troops to the battlefield. So instead, they engaged through airstrikes and, and drone strikes and training and advising and financing local militias and state militaries to kind of do the fighting and dying on the battlefield. And this brings a certain paradox because we no longer feel the consequence of war here and here in the Netherlands because there's no returning body bags on our side. And that's where kind of transparency and accountability comes in. The only time that we as a public get a sense of, okay, what are the consequences of the wars being waged in our name is when civilian harm is communicated to the parliament and to the public. And if we no longer see this, and that's why we found it really important to say actually we do know, we can know about civilian harm. We're going to prove how through these investigative methods. And we find it incredibly important that the parliament, in their role in a democratic society to hold our you know, military to account, is informed about this civilian harm. In your research, you use the term strategic unknowing in analyzing how Dutch officials dealt with their responsibility and how the official narrative shifted. You say from denial to secrecy to strategic ignorance, I think, in one article. Can you uh, elaborate a bit on that? The attack happened. The Minister of Defence was informed by the CENTCOM that the 70 civilian casualties were credible. She then informed her own parliament, the Dutch parliament, by saying there are no known cases. So that's a, you know, there are, <laughs> there are no known cases is an act of denial of civilian casualties that she was already aware of. Now, that's quite a kind of... a Denial is quite crude, right? Ultimately, you can uncover denial uh, and, and, and contest it. Um, her successor went on to say, I can't inform you about civilian casualties because of security issues. Um, that would undermine the security of our personnel, military personnel and national and strategic security. So her strategies were saying, I can't tell you about civilian harm because it's a secret. Then, of course, um, when the investigative journalists brought uh, to light that the Dutch were responsible for this civilian harm incident, and it was obvious that a lot of civilians had been killed. What we saw in the aftermath in the 22 hours of debates that took place in the Netherlands afterwards, and that I studied <laughs> with Nora Stel at, at length, is that there was this strategic ignorance. So Rutte, our Prime Minister, said, I can't remember being told about civilian casualties in 2015. The Minister of Defence at the time said... I did receive a report, but I didn't read into it. So this is this, I'm, I, you know, I, I could have known, but I chose not to inform myself. So I was ignorant at the time and I couldn't have told you anyway. But what they also tried to say is we can't know the extent of the civilian harm because it's not knowable. And this is really interesting because it's a different type of, you know, it's moving from denial, secrecy to actual ignorance. We can't know, CENTCOM can't know, nobody can know, so therefore we can't be held accountable for the civilian harm that's being done. And we say these forms are strategic because the denial was at a time just before the operation was extended. So Parliament needed to give their consent to maintain or continue in the operation. The secrecy at the time when the second Minister of Defence uh, said it, she couldn't uh, inform the Parliament was as a time in 2018 
when the Dutch uh, restarted the operation. And both times, if this, you know, this is, was one of the largest single incident of civilian harm, if this had been come to the parliament and to the public, you know, you could say that a lot of questions and maybe scrutiny and much more questioning of why are we in this operation and, and do we want to continue it if this is the extent of the damage that we're doing. But by denial and secrecy, that was kept out of the parliamentary debate. There were four votes of no confidence against the Minister of Defence and the Prime Minister. And this playing the strategic ignorance card basically maintained their power position. So they they weren't voted out of, of their power position. Well, before we, we ask the next question, we have to say also that it is strategic ignorance is a, a strategy we see more in our prime minister that he deploys in different things, but he definitely also did it here in Hoicha. Let me bring uh, Machiko in here. Machiko, you had a look at the research that uh, Lauren had done together with all these different organizations. So can I just start off by asking you, you had a look at the kind of detail of the consequences of the airstrike. I mean, it was more than just people dying. Can you describe what what's known about how broad the impact was? Yeah, indeed. So talking about how I know what I know, I think my knowledge is primarily based on the report that Lauren and her collaborators in PAX and a local partner, Algad. So attack and secondary explosion have led to at least 85 civilian casualties and damaged 6,000 homes and also damaged 1,200 businesses and shops. And one of the things that I remember from the report was June and due to the warm weather of June in Iraq and without a good supply of electricity, Many people at the time were actually sleeping outside, which made them particularly vulnerable to the sort of frying, shopping, and debris. So the report estimated civilian casualties as 85, but they also talked about reasons why they thought that the number should be much higher. So for instance, you know, it was difficult to trace the information of internally displaced persons who had fled to Hawija before the airstrikes. And this is also sort of, sort of the politics of counting civilian casualties. I think that's also one of the tricky issues. The report also talked about quite a few other forms of destruction. For instance, attack and secondary explosion have led to the damage in water pipelines and Hawija's electricity substation, and also destroy some schools. And what about psychological harm? I mean, I'm kind of interested in how you can describe that five years plus after an event. I mean, how can you assess what, what kind of the broader harm is to people's mental states later? Report also talked about many personal stories of psychological effects. So for instance, some children were described as being scared of loud noises, sort of not just the noise of aircraft, but also other kinds of noise. And that really tells us, you know, their state of mental health. And uh, those who have injured and those who have lost their family members or neighbors have nightmares and try to commit suicide. You know, psychological dimension of harm it's difficult to record, it's very difficult to verify, but describes as sort of overwhelming 
effect prevailing in the community, especially among young generations. One of the terms that uh, we see in connection with this is reverberating effects of destruction. And can you explain a bit more what that means and also how that fits in with the international humanitarian law and, and kind of law of war crimes? Maybe both of you could answer that because there is the collateral damage argument, but there is also the, f the question of can you put all of that damage into the current system we have for prosecuting potential war crimes or the effects of war? Yeah, so when we talk about civilian harms, at least some of us uh, tend to focus on sort of civilian deaths or damage to properties. But there are many other interrelated forms of effect on civilians. So they are sometimes called as indirect effect or knock-on effect or reverberating effect. A reverberating effect means that those effects that have lasting consequences or lasting effect. So in the case of how we share a number of knock-on effects. Uh, so for instance, uh, explosion has led to the damage in the city's electricity department and electricity circuit. And they stopped in turn the provision of water, which is one of the essential life commodities for, for anyone. And access to water and wash is critical. And without it, people get sick and yeah, the children are easily affected. And you can also clean surgical items, for instance. And on top of this, people's workplaces and factories were destroyed. So this has brought many, many other consequences. Uh, people lost uh, their livelihood and became unemployed. And food and medicines become less available and more expensive. And this resulted in the increase in people's debt. And in order to sustain incomes, economic hardship would exacerbate uh, psychological harms and also increase in the use of child labor because if they lost uh, sort of main family members who brought the income, mm -hmm. there are no other options but to use other members of the family. And beyond economic consequences, strike and explosion have led to the damage in Hawisha's healthcare center and Hawisha's general hospital. So people died not only from the airstrike and explosion themselves, but also because they did not have access to adequate medical treatment. Uh, so all these direct and indirect consequences uh, had an effect on, for instance, education. So, so some kids cannot go to school because they have to work or because they have psychological drama or the teachers themselves have led to Harwaysia because their homes were destroyed or because there are no economic uh, opportunities out there. So the use of you know, explosive weapons in populated areas can bring consequences that are rather sort of amplified and interconnected uh, with each other. And do you think those kinds of effects are dealt with adequately in international humanitarian law? Yeah, indeed. So one of the central questions here is how to interpret the principle of proportionality. So international humanitarian law has a set of fundamental principles, such as you know, principle of distinction, a principle of precautions, and principle of proportionality. So principle of proportionality is a is a is a very tricky sort of issue to, to work with. But in essence, uh, well, attack 
you, it's prohibited if the expected incidental harms to civilians would be excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage that can be anticipated. But if you look at sort of the relevant treaty provisions, they do not say explicitly about whether uh, commanders have to consider the indirect effect, the reverberating effect on civilians. And treaty interpretation is sort of both artistic and political. So it could go in both ways, depending on how restrictive or how expansive you wish to interpret. But there are scholars who argue that principle proportionality includes an obligation to take into account the reverberating effect of an attack on civilians. So there is a lot about the proportionality and the kind of damage that can be foreseen. Now, I recall from the Dutch uh, civil case for Hawija that there was a lot of denial from the military side on that this level of destruction could have been foreseen because I think part of the argument, if I recall, was that there was were much more explosive than they anticipated, at which the, you know, the Dutch lawyer for the victim said, you're bombing an explosive factory. What did you think was going to happen? Do you think that international law gives too much of an out for people with the proportionality and the not knowing and the way that defense ministries are allowed to say that they just couldn't predict what was going to happen and therefore it's proportional because if you don't know that there's going to be a huge effect then it's fine so under international law one of the key questions is whether indirect effect or knock-on effect or reverberating effect were reasonably foreseeable and if those effects were reasonably foreseeable i mean there there will be a possibility to hold commanders accounts even even if the, the commanders actually did not know those effects but the point is what kind of reverberating effect were actually reasonably foreseeable and that requires the accumulation of of evidence and try to help commanders identifying the patterns of reverberating effect so that we could say you know sort of objectively those effects should have been been foreseen so i think for that point we are still in the process of trying to identify indicators and try to identify the patterns of indirect effect there are a lot of initiatives at the moment a variety of ngos and united nations and some governments are working hard so that future military actions will be assessed on in the light of those patterns but i think we are still working on on building the patterns of reverberating effect. So one of the things that really struck me was if we had built uh, empirical evidence and trying to identify the indicators with which to make reverberating effect foreseeable, the discussions about how Awija would have been very different. Now, Lauren, you have done such research with that report. What has then changed in Dutch policy now? You have, in a way, provided some of this information where you could say that the Dutch government is now well aware of some of the effects that this thing could have. Do you see a change in policy? While we were actually investigating the Hawija case, at the same time, the Intimacies of Remote Warfare program, in collaboration again with the consortium, uh, including Amnesty and Airwars and PACS and Civic, 
and Open State Foundation started a roadmap process with the Ministry of Defence, transparency roadmap process, in which we engaged in a number of expert sessions and conversations with the Ministry of Defence to talk to them about transparency, why it's important, both from a political but also a military strategic perspective, and also transfer some of the skills that we have built up on on how to monitor civilian harm to the Ministry of Defence, um, because at this ca- at this moment they do not have those skills and don't have a, a way of investigating civilian harm themselves. So they were entirely reliant on the on the US. And that was a very interesting uh, process, and they have made some commitments on, on to improve their transparency records. So what I think is really important to, to realize is I was talking about denial that uh, the Ministry of Defense engaged in just immediately after the attack. In fact, if she had said, I can't tell you about civilian harm because of security issues, then that would have covered her basically, because at the time, the parliament didn't demand to be informed about civilian harm. So this security measure really stood in the way of any type of transparency and or accountability. So one of the main, our expert session um, that Utrecht University held was really pushing for civilian harm to be put on the Article 100 letter. That's in, in the Netherlands, that's when parliament kind of consents for the Netherlands to engage in military operations. So what we realized through these expert sessions was if civilian harm is not in that letter, nobody's going to, nobody needs to <laughs> monitor civilian harm and they don't need to report back on civilian harm. So I think that now on the day of the release of our report, the Ministry of Defense also released uh, her new uh, transparency policy and that is now being taken up in, in that new policy. The proof of the pudding is, of course, in the eating. Um, so we will be watching closely how this happens in, in future operations. And just to, to clarify, so that having it in the Article 100 letter means that the Ministry of Defense will have to report back on civilian harm if if it occurs when Dutch forces fight remotely or uh, take part in international military actions. Yes. In principle, yes. There's a lot of caveats and loopholes that we um, have with our consortium written a reflection on what we what we are a little bit worried about. So what the Dutch Ministry of Defence is now committed to, if there is a incident of civilian harm, if they start an investigation, they will immediately inform the parliament. And whether they do so publicly or behind closed door, again, the security aspects comes into play. One of the loopholes that I foresee in that process is when does a when does the Ministry of Defence start an investigation? Yeah, so and what is an investigation? Is, yes, exactly. What is an investigation? So that's on individual incidents, and then there is the monitoring and evaluation of operations. Uh, so there are yearly monitoring reports and end of operation evaluations, and now. In principle, civilian harm is part of that evaluation process. So they have to report back on on civilian harm. Again, we have to then invest money in setting up a civilian harm procedure, monitoring procedure. We now, they've committed to setting up a protection of civilian cell in the Netherlands. But for instance, the Netherlands has just announced a 40% increase in their budget a lot are going to MQ Reaper drones that are being armed. So a lot more remoteness will take place in, in Dutch operations, as well as an additional, I think, six F-35s above the 46 that we all already have. So as a conflict analyst, I can 
you know, predict we'll be seeing a lot of more operations and remoteness and remote targeting. There is a protection of civilian uh, cell, which is a great step, but we don't see actually money being in, invested in this cell. So it's a lot on paper, but like I said, proof is in the, <laughs> in the eating of the pudding. I'll let uh, Janet ask a question to just before, just the 40% increase in budget is obviously the budget for the Dutch Ministry of Defense yeah. and Defense Operations. Yeah. And uh, I love the fact that you use this very uh, Kareem Khan phrase, uh, Lauren, uh, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. He's always, always saying that. But I'm wondering also, you know, there's the effects in terms of what what may change, what is planning to be changed in the, the Dutch military. But what about these people on the ground that, that you met? I mean, what about these civilian vi victims? I understand that the Dutch have allocated 4.4 million euros for reconstruction. Can you see it? Is it happening? Yeah. So maybe I just take one step back. What we investigated in the report was both the direct and reverberating civilian harm effects. I think it's really important to add that these were occurring in rebel-held territory, right? So people couldn't access medical care was also because ISIS was entirely con in control of, of Hawija until 2017. So another two years, people were stuck in the city with injuries, deaths, no access to water, but also under the very, very strict regime of IS. So I think as a conflict analyst, this really influences how people perceived also these coalition bombing and the fact that nothing was done in the immediate and long-term after effect. So what we did in the report was also look at how people interpret the operation, this particular incident, and the injuries and direct and reverberating effects that occurred afterwards. And what we interestingly see is that initially civilians also believed in the precision discourse. So they welcomed the coalition led against operation against ISIS, thinking that they would be able to target discriminately. So they would be able to target IS and, and save um, their lives and protect them. Of course, this is the same narrative that we increasingly always hear about these operations here at home, but this narrative travels to the local communities. So when the actual attack happened and then in the aftermath, it was, you know, nobody took any uh, responsibility and, and nothing was being seen to be done to address the terrible situation they were in. This led to a lot of grievances amongst the local population. And in our report, it really shows that these are targeted towards the coalition as a whole, but also very specifically towards the Netherlands. You know, this is the capital of human rights. Uh, you know, why why did they just leave us to 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 defend for ourselves and and not take responsibility for this attack and possibly apologize? So what we see, yes. In the aftermath of the investigative journalists' unraveling of the net Dutch responsibility in 2019, so this was four and a half years after the attack took place, and the parliamentary debates, the parliament said, we, we demand that you pay a, a form of compensation, kind of an ex gratia payment. It's not taking responsibility for the damage that has been done, but it is saying, we see your suffering and we're going to provide you with a development aid to, to rebuild what was destroyed. It's a very legal thing where if you pay an ex gratia payment, you're not accepting legal responsibility for what happened because you can't do that right now or you don't want to, but you do kind of recognize the suffering and hope that they feel that this is enough of a, 
of support where they might not sue you, which is not what happened in the Netherlands. <laughs> Indeed. So interestingly, we also then, when we were doing our investigation, were seeing how this money was being spent and how, what effect it was having for the civilians that had been uh, suffering and targeted. The Dutch decided to kind of outsource this money to the UN and the IOM. And at the time of our investigation, so I think that was about a year after this money being allocated, very little was being seen to be done. One new electricity substation, mobile substation. But when I was there just uh, last April, the destruction was still, it was everywhere. There was you know, houses uh, uh, destroyed, rubble. Uh, I have a, a, yeah, a picture of kind of me in the rubble and I'm tiny compared to, <laughs> to the vast amount of rubble that was still there. Thankfully, I just had a conversation with one of my co-authors, Saba Azim from Pux. Um, she's been traveling back and forth since. And there seems to be some construction work going on now. So there are some wooden poles that set, uh, are starting to be set up that look like that might become new shops. So that's a, that's great. But at the same time, we saw when interviewing our respondents that, A, they have a large distrust in these large organizations, that they'll actually see the money. So at the time, they were, they were you know, really quite aggravated by the fact that they hadn't seen anything done yet. Now, you know, they're seeing some steps being taken, but it's very indirect. And these civilian casualties really want individual compensation because, like I said, and Amachiko explained, loss of life, loss of loved one, loss of limb, loss of income, house above their head. So they're really eager to be individually compensated, as well as to receive an apology by the Dutch state. And not, neither of these two things have occurred. And we're, of course, you know, nearly seven years uh, later, or seven years. And that's why they now turn to the Dutch legal system and the human rights lawyer, Lisbeth Sechfeld, to represent them and try to demand these two things through a court case. Yeah, and just I will give some details about the court case because Lauren has assured me that she has no legal background and she feels <laughs> uncomfortable talking about this specifically. And I did follow it. So so we know Lisbeth Serfeld from other cases and we've had her on the podcast. And she, yeah, she supports, I think, 11 Iraqi victims of this airstrike. And indeed, as Lauren says, Mostly they are upset that they didn't get individual compensation and the Netherlands keeps saying some development money went there and they're saying uh, I, the mayor all took it and it's, I don't see any difference in my life with this money. And it dragged on for a long time because uh, this was already in 2019, I think this came out and then Segfeld announced that she might start a case. And then she started negotiations with the Dutch uh, government and the Ministry of Defense to get more compensation. And that, I guess, didn't uh, pan out, these negotiations. And then to put more pressure on, she starts a case. And the cases that Zegveld starts are always civil cases. And that's a very long, drawn-out process in the Netherlands. So she just made the first steps. And we can expect that to carry on for at least a couple of years, I think, because they're still in the beginning phases of it, then there is always, almost always an appeal. And when that appeal is decided on, it almost always goes to the highest court in the Netherlands, because the Dutch government is very, very reticent to, to accept any kind of ruling that makes the state responsible for these kinds of things, because it impacts, of course, how they could 
do future uh, international military operations. So what we see in these cases is always that it's very drawn out and that they go right up until the highest court before we have a ruling. So so I think we're looking at several years at least of, of procedures. And at the moment, uh, when you have such a little start of the proceeding, then you have months and months of where people are exchanging documents and then you have maybe another hearing at some point. But there's nothing on the on the docket for now that I know of. Well, I think that's great to hear a Stephopedia right at the end of the uh, of the podcast rather than at the beginning as usual. So we get, get all the details of... Uh, of what what's going on, Lauren? Maybe you want to have a final word on something that uh, you we didn't ask that we should have asked you because I have the feeling we've covered a, an enormous amount here, but maybe there's some aspect that we didn't didn't get into. Yeah, I think looking at this particular incident, like a, again, we have to zoom in and out. So these this is one incident of of, of thirty five thousand strikes, missions hundred thousand strikes. You know, whole cities were destroyed, both. Hawija, Mosul, Raqqa, 70 to 80% of cities destroyed. We can now start to understand the direct and indirect civilian harm effects. Now, this is not just from a conflict studies perspective. I would say it's not just a legal question. It's very important, but it's also a political and military strategic question that we, we have to address. And that's what I've also trying to bring into the negotiations with the Ministry of Defense. The aim of the operation against IS was to defeat IS, but also to bring enduring security. Now, what we see in in Hawija, you know, people still don't have a house above their head. They have, you know, little way of of creating an income. They're struggling with reintegrating IS families. Now, as a conflict analyst, this is, you know, known as the core ingredients that can lead to the mobilization of new insurgencies, whether it's the IS on the rise again, but the grievances that are there can lead to new cycles of violence. And I think. You know, like you were saying, the, the court case takes a long, long time. I think it's really important that we realize that, you know, in the now, if we don't provide these people with a hopeful future, we're likely to not only create new cycles of violence there, but these grievances against, you know, Western operations will, will remain. And that's, of course, one of the reasons why IS was able to rise to power in the first place. So I think as a Western public and, and, and parliament, we have to understand how these layers of, of, of dynamics work and that it's in our interest to also you know, restrain the violence, the type of violence that's executed in our, in our name. And as our final question that we always ask on the podcast, which you cannot prepare for, we always ask our guests if they can recommend something that they're reading, watching, listening to, now what's on the nightstand, if it's connected to international law or even if it isn't. I'm going to ask Mashiko if you want to explain to us what you are reading or listening to or binging on Netflix. Some of us have taking courses at Coursera or, uh, you know, other platforms of, of MOOC, sort of online courses. And at least I try some courses and uh, I always failed to complete those courses. But one of the few courses I, I, at least I managed to follow until the end was about a course offered by one of the American universities. Uh, it was uh, on social psychology. 
So one of the things that this course on, on social psychology talked about was the role of implicit and explicit biases uh, that we all have. And, and then I got really interested in social psychology and then reading a bit more about those biases. And I think those explicit and implicit biases would be extremely relevant in many corners of our daily life, but also including, you know, the discussion of international justice and also discussion of how, how we job. That's great. Thanks, Michiko. I'm, I know I have lots of implicit biases and I know that I don't know them, but uh, I, uh, I am at least aware of, of the fact that they, they exist. And what about you, Lauren? Are you? Uh... <laughs> well, in preparation for today, I was reading my own book, <laughs> that I co-authored, um, and it's called Hawija, the Destructive Reality of Our War Against IS. And I wasn't reading it to read my own words, but actually in this book, we bring all the different experts together that have politicians, the human rights lawyers, the victims themselves, academics, who have reflected on this case. And they, and in this book, we try to build the biggest storm of remote warfare, civilian harm, and democratic control. We'll put the links for all of this in the liner notes. And um, but thank you very much. Thank you, Machiko, as well. Thank you. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with JusticeInfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.